Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Adventure of Prayer, with a message entitled, The Nature of Christian Praying. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, I read an article about a man in a Soviet prison. You One day while praying, a fellow prisoner was ridiculing him and saying, you know, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. And the Christian man responded, I don't pray to get out of prison. I pray to do the will of God. Now, that statement highlights the mysterious nature of praying. All of us have prayed for something to happen in which we would get out of a particular situation. And Jesus once told a parable about an unrighteous judge who gave justice to a poor widow, not because he cared about her, but because she wouldn't leave him alone and kept bothering him with her appeals for justice. And Jesus on that occasion was trying to make a point. If this unrighteous judge provides justice for a woman who kept coming to him, how much more will our Father in heaven, who is altogether righteous and merciful, provide justice for his people who cry out to him? Well then, it would seem that we do pray for results, or as we all might be tempted to add to pray, in prison, God, get me out of here. You know, provide me with justice. Provide me with mercy. But here's a part of the mystery of prayer. What should we pray for in time of trouble? Should we pray, Lord, deliver me from this trouble? Or should we pray, give me the power to rejoice in my troubles? Or, Lord, show me what to do now that I am in trouble. You know, uh, two examples of just such a thing come to mind. The first is found in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says he was given a thorn in the flesh, and whatever this thing was, you know, it must have been a, a malady in his flesh or in his body. Paul calls this thing a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. And then he adds something curious. He said it also came to keep him from becoming conceited. See, Paul knew that God had always kept him in mind. And three times he pleaded with God, much like the widow before the unrighteous judge, take it away. And there's the request, get me out of this prison. Give me freedom. Allow me to be more effective in my ministry without this thorn. And of course, eventually God does give him the answer. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is... This will keep you from pride and arrogance, and this will make you more dependent on me. So the thorn stays. See, here's my second example, and it's Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Father, take this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, I see in these two examples an explanation of a mystery that often haunts believers. How am I to pray when I'm in distress or like this Christian man who was unjustly imprisoned in a Soviet prison? And the answer to this conundrum is not easily come by. Do I pray for healing or do I pray to rejoice in my weakness, resting in the will of God for me? See, I know this is a very real part of every Christian struggle in prayer. I mean, what do we do in every single circumstance? How do we pray? Well, I think there's an answer, but we can only come to it by stepping back first. So let's talk about the nature of Christian praying. Now, if you listened to me yesterday, you will have heard me speaking about the great privilege that we have to enter into the throne room of our Heavenly Father and to enter into the Holy of Holies, 
by a new and living way opened up through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And for Christians, that picture forms a general pattern of all of our praying. We pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ the Son. See, Ephesians 2 verse 18, I think, expresses it well. It says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, the context of Ephesians 2 18 is that Paul has been saying that both Jews and Gentiles have equal access to God. And so the words, we both, refers to that. But notice how he begins, for through him, he says. So who's him? Him refers to Jesus. For through Jesus Christ, the Son, he who has become our great high priest, we both, that is, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father. A door has been opened. But notice also that Paul says that this happens in one spirit. And so here in our praying, we have a Trinitarian formula. Christians pray as Trinitarians. We pray to the Father. We enter the Holy of Holies, his throne room, bringing our request to him. But we enter through Jesus, the Son, and we pray in the Holy Spirit. So let me say it again. Under normal conditions, Christian prayer is addressed to the Father in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our understanding of the nature of Christian prayer. Now notice Ephesians 3.14. Paul says, I bow my knee to the Father. Again, under normal conditions, Christian prayer is praying to the Father in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. We remember that Jesus himself taught us to address our prayers to the Father. Matthew 6, verse 9, after being asked how we should pray, Jesus answers, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what we find in the rest of the New Testament as well. In Ephesians 5, verse 20, Paul speaks of giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, under normal circumstances, our prayers are directed to the first person of the Trinity, to the Father. That's how we pray. Now, before I move from this point, I mean, this has led some Christians to argue that we should never pray either to the Son or to the Spirit. I think, however, that's an extreme position. There are exceptions to this, even in the New Testament. You know, consider, for instance, Acts 1.24. That passage says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Now, by the way, just a little insight. Pay attention. Whenever you find in the New Testament the term Father or the term God, it's almost always referring to the first person of the Trinity. And whenever we find the word Lord, it's almost always referring to the second person of the Trinity, that is, to Jesus. So in Acts 1.24, the church prays, Lord, that is, Lord Jesus, show us which man should replace Judas in this apostolic ministry. Ah, why did they break the traditional pattern of praying here? Well, the answer is they did because it was Jesus who initially chose the 12, and since they needed to replace one of the 12, it seemed completely in order then to ask Jesus to choose another one to replace Judas. So, do you see, an exception has presented itself. And since Jesus the Son is fully equal with the Father, and since he is also fully God, it was appropriate because of the circumstances that presented themselves on that occasion, that they should pray directly to Jesus. 
But how about praying directly to the Holy Spirit? Is that acceptable? Well, that's a difficult question because, you know, we don't actually have any incidences in the Scripture that records a prayer to the Holy Spirit. But we have a great many examples of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as an example, you might think of John 16, verse 17, where Jesus says, Of the Spirit, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And of course, on this side of Pentecost. Now, we would say that we know the Holy Spirit. He's always with us, and he does now live within us. That is, we're constantly aware of him. We're aware of his presence. Or think of Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Or again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, since then, we're always aware of the Holy Spirit, since we know that he assures us that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. And since we, when we sin, notice how that grieves the Holy Spirit, and we notice how he convicts us, and since, as Galatians 5 reminds us, that he is producing godly fruit in us, or as 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us, that he's giving us spiritual gifts, Well, his activity is not foreign to us. We are familiar with him. We are aware of him. And so just as we noticed in relationship to Jesus, I would argue it would be quite in order to address the Holy Spirit when there is some activity that directly relates to his work in our lives. Maybe expressing thanksgiving to him. Maybe asking him for a spiritual gift that we might need because it relates directly to what Christ has called us to do. Well, all of that seems in order to me. So you see, while it's true that the normal vehicle of prayer is to approach the Father and bring our request to him, but since the scripture doesn't forbid it, and because all three persons of the Trinity are fully God, there may be some occasions, because of the unique work of either the Son or the Spirit, that we might want to pray to either one of them directly. As God's children, we praise our Heavenly Father who overflows with love and grace. Not only did He create us and sacrifice His one and only Son for our redemption, but He longs for intimacy with His people. And prayer is an essential tool for growing relationships with Christ. But for so many of us, prayer remains a discipline in need of deepening. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is offering a booklet entitled 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers hand-selected by Dr. John to reflect on in your quiet moments before God. It's not an instruction manual, but actual prayers intended to be used as a meditation. To request your free copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Now, I would expect that the very first effective prayer that any person prays is probably a prayer that's directed not to the Father, but to the Son. It goes like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Please forgive my sins and make me yours. Prayer of conversion. I also expect that every believer has on many occasions prayed, Come, Holy Spirit, and fill me afresh. 
make my sin distasteful to me and make Jesus more lovely to me. I mean, those prayers are profoundly Christian ways of praying. So I've said that we shouldn't assume that all praying is only to the Father. But I've also said that in normal situations, we address the Father in the name of the Son under the power of the Spirit. That's the nature of Christian praying. Now, as I began teaching on the nature of Christian praying, I I began by using the example of the Christian that was in a communist prison, not asking God to get out of there, but rather asking God to show him what he must do while he's in there. And we know where such a prayer comes from. You know, it rises out of a knowledge of Romans 8.28. God is meticulously at work to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And we also know from reading our Bibles that, you know, after Joseph was sold into slavery and then acted as a household slave in the house of an Egyptian noble, and then he was falsely accused and then imprisoned and then forgotten and then left there to rot, that God on his own timetable intervened. And we also know what Joseph would later say to his brothers. Genesis 45 verse 5 records him as saying, God sent me ahead of you to preserve human life. See, we might say, no, no, Joseph, you got it wrong. God didn't send you to Egypt. You were cruelly abducted. Well, yeah, Joseph knew that. He knew that his misfortunes had not been bad luck or accidents or only due to the cruel designs of Satan. He knew that behind all of those things is the unseen and meticulous hand of a loving God. See, I'm saying that our theology directs our praying. People with really bad theology when they're suffering shake their fist at God and say, how would you ever allow such a thing to happen? And people with good theology, well, they already know 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That is, as we grow in Christ, we have learned that suffering releases us from the love of this world. We know that we've not put our hope and our longing for comfort in this world. Suffering serves both to remind us that this earth has no comfort, and so instead we embrace the sufferings of Christ. And don't you think that that shapes and fashions our prayers? Of course it does. I knew one woman after she was diagnosed with a life-changing disease said to me, you know, Pastor, I need prayer, but would you promise not to pray for my healing? That's what she said. I pray I might not miss what Christ has for me in this illness. I don't want prayer for healing to take my eyes off that. Again, I'm reminded of the prayer of the Christian in the Soviet prison. I don't pray to get out of this prison. I pray to do the will of God. See, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for healing or for deliverance or for the hardships in our lives to stop, but we should always be searching for God and his will to be done in our praying. And I've said that our theology or our Bible study informs our prayers, and yet I would hasten to add that our theology is not enough. No one's strong enough to allow their theology and their principles to constantly govern the things they face. We need help. And for that reason, I think it is time to dig more deeply into the normal formula of Christian praying. Remember, we address the Father in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. So what does that last part, that praying in the Holy Spirit, actually mean? Well, I'm reading Romans 8, 26 and 27. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So let's start with what I think is often the obvious. There are many times in my life, and I just don't know what to pray for. Notice that this passage begins with the word likewise, or in the same manner. Well, in the same manner as what? Well, according to verse 18 of this chapter, I am to consider the sufferings of this present time, and I am to conclude that no matter how great my sufferings, they are not to be compared to the glory that's awaiting me when Christ is revealed. It's what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he said, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look, Paul's not saying that suffering is light or that it's momentary. At times, our suffering can be overwhelmingly heavy, and our suffering might indeed last for a very long time. Now, some of you who are listening to me right now can attest that that, that's true. But it's key. In comparison to the weight of glory, suffering's light. That is, as great as earthly suffering is, Heavenly glory is so much greater that in comparison, it's as light as a feather. That's the weight of what the great and glorious God is preparing for us. Now, back to Romans 8. The creation is groaning, says Paul, under the weight of sin, as are our own lives. The suffering is more than we know what to do. And so what do we do? Well, we pray. We we go to God. But what do we pray? We don't even know. Shall we, like Jesus, say, O Father, save me from this hour? Or shall we say, like Jesus, for this reason I have come to this hour? Shall we pray, Heavenly Father, take this cup from me and release me from this prison? Or shall we pray, help me know what to do in prison so that this prison might bring glory to you? How shall I pray? And then comes the answer. We don't know how to pray. We're too weak. We're too unsure. We're unable to gain perspective. After all, when the waves are washing over our heads, how do we gain perspective? We can't. We groan. We call out to God. But our prayers are confused and desperate and unaware of the great God who is seated on the throne. All there are are disordered words of the children of God. And so then, is this all there is to our prayers? (laughs) No, says the apostle. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then comes that line. It's a wonderful line. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Oh, that's wonderful. Have you ever asked someone to pray for you? Now, what if that person is as confused about what to pray for as you are? Well, what then? Wouldn't it be so much better for a godly and more mature and a wise man or woman to pray for us? Wouldn't that be far more effective? Well, yes, it would be more effective. But what if it was the Holy Spirit himself who stepped into the breach and prayed for us So how does he do that? Well, according to this passage, he does it with groans that words can't express. Now, the word helps, that is, the Holy Spirit helps us. It's a Greek word there, and it's the same word that was used actually in Luke chapter 10. Martha is serving, and she wants Mary to come and help her. Well, that means that she's not going to stop serving, but rather Mary is going to come alongside and assist her. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8. 
It's not that we stop praying and then in the heavenly realms, the Holy Spirit takes over. No, no. Rather, it's that the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and lifts us and assists us where we could no longer pray on our own. See, I don't know how that works, only I know that it does work. Not all our praying is our praying. At some level, prayer begins to take on a dimension of something that can only be described as a mystery. Our words, our groans, our exaltation, everything seems so much more than we can pray. It's as if the Holy Spirit is dictating a prayer script for us, and our prayers are then prayed in the will of God. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. You know, for instance, Jude 20 tells us to pray in the Spirit. Luke 10.21 tells us to rejoice in the Spirit. And Acts 19.21, we read of believers who decided something in the Spirit. Colossians 1.8 tells us to love in the Spirit. All of the Christian life were impossible were it not for the Spirit. How is it that our hearts are drawn to Christ in the first place if not for the Spirit? And when we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil— Would we not have lost that fight so very long ago were it not for the Spirit? And still further, isn't our ongoing growth into holiness the work of the Spirit as he produces godly fruit in our lives? And since that's so, why should our praying be any different? See, how can we ever learn to pray apart from the Spirit? And that then is the nature of Christian praying. We enter into the inner sanctuary and we address our Heavenly Father. Were it not for the priestly ministry of Jesus, we would not be there. And when we open our mouths, were it not for the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't know what to say. John, let me ask you a question. You know, praying in the Spirit, your personal prayer tongue, some would call it, what's that about? Yeah, I know many people mention that. I I want to say two things, Ben. Um, the, The groans that are mentioned in Romans 8 is not a reference to tongues. At least I can't see it that way. I don't think that that's what the the passage bears out. However, we do know that tongues is a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit. Um, and we also know that uh, Paul, when he talks about praying in tongues, he speaks about, you know, that my my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, meaning that there is something that arrives, you know, out of me that wants to express adoration to God that I don't have the words to pray, and that tongues is given as a wonderful gift. So we want to affirm tongues, even as we also affirm that there is an additional work of the Holy Spirit apart from that. I want to say both of those. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Adventure of Prayer, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every single week, we hear stories of listeners drawing closer to the Lord through the teaching of Back to the Bible Canada. Hearing your testimony reminds us that God's Word does not return empty, but makes an impact. Heidi wrote, Your show was sometimes the one constant that provided an anchor in an otherwise upside-down world. Your ministry reaches further than I think you realize. If you have a story to share of how Back to the Bible Canada has helped impact your spiritual walk, please let us know that we're hitting the mark. 
just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, please consider how you might support this ongoing Bible teaching ministry with your financial support. It would mean so much.